Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. I'm delighted to say that today's guest is a returning visitor, and he returns very much the insurance executive of the moment. Adrian Cox is the CEO of Beasley, which since we last spoke has cemented its reputation as the most dynamic and pioneering of the London-headquartered global specialty insurers and reinsurers. Late in 2022, Beasley raised fresh capital to deploy into the hard reinsurance market. It did this in an environment when almost nobody else could get financing away. And just as we were about to do the recording, the firm announced that it had placed the first ever cyber cat bond. So perhaps understandably, Adrian was absolutely buzzing in this episode. The firm's core markets have all reset, and Beasley's positions within them look extremely attractive. But of course, global risks and uncertainties have never been more acute. Perhaps paradoxically, that's what suggests the real reason why Adrian seems so energised. I think that's because he's an underwriter leading a risk-bearing underwriting business at a time when customers have never been so aware of their risk and of their need of, and appreciation for, the specific expertise to take that risk away. So Cox's enthusiasm is coming not because times are easy and business is too, but because of the opposite. Business isn't easy, but it favours specialists with capital who are willing and able to take that heightened risk head on. In this crackling podcast, we cover the market resets in property reinsurance, specialty and cyber classes, and where Beasley fits in with them, as well as the ongoing ESG transition, the prospects for rising tech efficiencies in insurance, and the emergence of new ways of working in the post-pandemic world. Enjoy the podcast. Adrian, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. Good to be back. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you. It's a very different year. It looks like 2023 is shaping up to be a hell of a year compared to 2022. We've had this very dramatic 1-1 renewal. Maybe it wasn't so dramatic for you. But having gone through all of that, how has it changed you? How has it changed your strategy? And, and what's changed for Beasley in this time of market change? I think our core strategy hasn't really changed much following the 1-1 the renewal season. I think what it has done is allowed us to accelerate some of the stuff that we wanted to do anyway. There have been quite a few changes at 1-1. The biggest one, I think, really around property reinsurance and the market finally resetting so that it can properly take into account the effects of climate change, inflation, and covering the cost of capital for property cat reinsurance. And for us, as we've been flagging for a while, that presents a long-term opportunity, and we were able to capitalise on that. So you're happy, really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we raised capital in November and we raised capital in November on the expectation that the property reinsurance market was going to reset. And that was giving us a short-term opportunity in reinsurance, which hopefully will extend for a while, but actually a long-term opportunity to rebuild our property franchise. Property, go back 10 years or so, you know, was over 25% of our business and it was a real jewel in our crown. And over the last 10 years, it had been getting more and more commoditized. The view of risk was getting more similar and the specialist nature of some of the property business that we wrote was being eroded. And as a specialty insurance carrier, once something gets commoditized, we have less to say. And then at the same time, we saw it began getting increasingly dangerous as climate change had its impact on weather patterns and losses and so on and so forth. And that was quite a difficult combination for us, commoditization and increased complexity. But we've been thinking for the last couple of years, actually, that was going to reset at some point. Property would become more specialist again as people recognise that property risk is changing and a bit more difficult. And that should create an opportunity for us to rebuild that franchise. And that's what we've been flagging for a couple of years. And that hoved into view quite sharply at the end of last year. 
and it's happening as we hoped it would do. So yes, I am quite pleased. So you're able to execute on, on what every carrier CEO says they're going to do, that you step away from a market at the expense of becoming less relevant in that market over a long period of time, because it's you're just seeing it's not quite right, or you don't think you can make money doing that, or it doesn't seem to be optimal in any sense. And then you're able to do what every underwriter says they would like to be able to do, is now to be able to step back in in a big way. So did those renewals come up to expectations? Yes, I think so. What we had said back in November was that we had expected a genuine reset of the property reinsurance market so that it properly contemplated the things that I mentioned around climate change, inflation, and actually covering its cost of capital. We had broadly anticipated that that reset would take the form of increased attachment points so that reinsurance was really only covering primary perils, um, tightening terms and conditions, and increased prices with a rate change for the year of the order of 50% on the reinsurance account. And when we look what happened at 1-1, broadly speaking, that is what came to pass. And we've had a few false dawns, haven't we, over the last 10 years. And it's good to see that this wasn't one. And it appears to be a full reset rather than just a, a temporary outcome of a shift in demand and supply. And so you raised the money because you had a feeling or you understood that your own reinsurance was going to be less likely to support you, that you'd have to stand on your own two feet and that your own capital would be welcome and a bit more deployable. Was it so that you could retain more? with the expression knowing that you probably would have to retain more if you were going to operate in this market? Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons why we decided to, to raise capital. The first was around that, yes. So as we went through October, it, it became increasingly clear what was going to happen in reinsurance, which is an opportunity for the reinsurance that, that, that we sell. It meant that we were very much likely to have to keep more risk for the property insurance that we write, which would require more capital. So if we wanted to lean in and actually grow the book, more capital would be useful. In addition to that, though, as we've been growing other parts of the book over the last four or five years, particularly cyber and the specialty risks side, we had been ceding a reasonable chunk of that proportionally to reinsurance partners because we could grow more than we could keep on our own balance sheet and we needed to make sure that the mix of business on our own balance sheet made sense. So having more capital also allows us to keep more of that cyber and specialty risk business. So there was a sort of a triple impact of it because we could use it three times. So now sort of after we've thrown everything up in the air and it's all landed at 1-1, What's the sort of different balance of, you have a slightly different Beasley portfolio today from what it would have been in 31-12. What does it look like now and how should we view Beasley the whole? How has it changed in terms of balance? Nothing dramatic as yet because we're growing the property a little bit and we're retaining more of the specialty risks and the cyber business. I, I think what you'll see over the medium to long term, I hope, is that the property risks business in total will start to form a slightly bigger part of the whole somewhat like it used to. Although we can grow the reinsurance book relatively quickly, growing a property insurance book, particularly through our platform in North America, is a job that's going to take five to 10 years, not 18 months. How sustainable do you think this reset in the property reinsurance market is going to be? Everyone's hope that it will be sustainable. It tends to be, and it has been the experience of previous harder markets. Maybe you have a bit of a spike, but it does reach a new plateau for a few years at least. Has that sort of been the plan? Yeah, I think whilst it's difficult to take demand and supply out of the equation when you're thinking about how the markets will behave, it seems quite difficult to put climate change back in the box again, right? Unless the climate stops changing, in which case, actually, I'll take that. That's a better outcome. If the world stops heating up, and the only price is the property cap market softens a bit. I think that's a, we will all be happy. That's a net good. But having reset to have that forward-looking view about the impact of climate change, it's hard to see that 
going away. In fact, our central assumption is that the property insurance market will increasingly do the same thing and start to think about climate change as it contemplates its insurance. So we'd start to take the last five years as being more than normal rather than being an exceptionally bad run of five years. Yeah, I think we have to accept that the past is not necessarily a guide to the future when it comes to weather events and we need a forward-looking view of risk. And that's not unusual in specialty business. When you think about other lines of business that, that we write, on the liability side, for example, we need to think about what people are going to be sued for in years to come, not what they were sued for five, ten years ago. So thinking about how risk is changing is a part of what you do as a business. We just need to build that into our property underwriting. And obviously you raised that money. And how much of that do you think you've been able to deploy at 1-1? You deliberately hold some of it back in the anticipation that things are going to carry on flexing as the year goes on? It's not all deployed at 1-1. A reasonable chunk of the reinsurance book is written between 1-1 and 1-4, which is why we wanted to raise the capital in November so that it was there to deploy. But we hope to be able to use it throughout the year. The human side of the renewal came to the fore. I suppose previously, when we had more homogenous markets and plenty of capital and plenty of capacity everywhere, it was easy for everyone to agree on things, agree on whatever the broker said, and then just put your line down and, and then not okay. necessarily smiles, but you know, you could commiserate with each with other. Each other yep. that you'd, you'd agreed on, yes, on lowering the price another 5% this year. Now, when there is a reset, there is more differentiation in the marketplace completely because obviously people are relying on their own view of risk and their own capital on what is their fundamental beliefs. And that came through on the human side as well, that some people sold themselves on being that partner. And then others, students were perhaps surprised to discover that some of the reinsurers that they thought were their long-term partners suddenly didn't want a partner anymore or were playing hardball or holding back terms and waiting till the last minute and waiting to see the whites of people's eyes and waiting for shortfalls, all that kind of thing. As you've re-entered that market, obviously it's not as if you'd ever left the market, but you stood back and become consciously less relevant in that marketplace and less reliant on that marketplace for your bread and butter. As you've come back in, what's been your pitch to those seedants, so people that you're now reacquainting yourselves with? Perhaps maybe you're coming back to seedants that you used to be on years ago, and now you're coming back to them. Are you coming back to them and say, I'm here because the water's lovely at the moment, but as soon as it gets cold again, I'm off. You know, I don't have a wetsuit. I'm not one of those kind of property underwriters. What's been the pitch but as you come back? It's quite interesting. that Just that human side of it, you know, there's the story that you tell people. Yeah, well, so, I mean, we've been in the property reinsurance market since we started in 1986. So people know what you stand for, I suppose. And it's mostly a renewal book over the years. So a lot of the clients we've had, we've had for a very, very, very long time. I think what's happened over the last 10 years is that proportionally our line sizes have been eroding. So not that we've been coming off and on business, but we've been reducing so our lines. So you've kept sort of watching briefs and watching so lines. It's just come down and down and down. And so fundamentally what we've done is to try to rebuild that up a little bit and write some new business. So I think we do try to position ourselves as a reinsurance partner on the cat side who is here for the long term. We'll just adjust our risk exposure according to the... So it was much more sort of doing more on those since you've kept in touch with for years, but you hadn't been so quite so happy with the pricing. And now that the pricing's come your way, yeah. you're and offering much bigger lines. We're trying to step up a little bit and we're writing some new business. And so our underwriting was a mixture of long-term relationships that we're looking to rebuild a little bit and some new business. It was interesting that you were out raising in a market where a lot of other people were trying to raise and not able to raise. Do you think that now that perhaps we've got some runs on the board, certainly the impression I got from being at Monte Carlo and the whole of sort of talking to people throughout Q4 was that investors were very much folding their arms and sort of sitting on their hands and saying, look, I've heard this story before. I want to see some actual proof that this yeah. is going to be happening. Do you expect that others will be able to raise now that at least we can see with these 1-1 reports come out, we're going to see 
runs on the board, big numbers, and probably as full year results of big public companies come out and Q1 numbers are posted, do you think the environment's going to change? So when we think about the, the headwinds for raising capital last year, I think there were three. The first was something you mentioned earlier. The reinsurance market has said it's going to harden before, and there have been some false dawns, so unfulfilled promises. I think the second is that there is some scepticism that the insurance and reinsurance market can actually successfully underwrite for and price for climate change. And there's a bit less capital around, and there is increasing competition for it. We are in a new era now with interest rates at 4% plus and so on and so forth. And so there are other ways that investors can deploy their capital that are perhaps a little bit easier to understand. Those are the things we're hearing in the, in the second half of 2022. As we move into 2023 now, what's changed? Well, we've got one proof point that the reinsurance market did do what it said it would do at 1-1. But there are three different headwinds and the second two haven't really changed yet. So it'll be interesting to see how many of those things need to get proven before new capital comes in. I suppose it's how relatively good our story is compared to someone who's saying, oh, no, we look, tech stocks are down 30%, why don't we buy them? Or obviously we can just go straight into government bonds these days or on the expectations that they're going to recover. So we're hearing, aren't we, that there's expectation that more capital will come in for 2023 and it's all speculation at the moment. But we did hear those three clear messages that those are the reasons why capital has, in your words, sort of folded its arms last year. So much has changed in the last few years not least in Bolton Associates' world of recruiting actuaries and insurance. There is more and more need for actuaries and cap modellers. Demand is outstripping supply. But this is not the first time we've seen this. Bolton Associates has operated in this market for over 20 years. We know what attracts candidates to roles and what matters in this hybrid working world. We're having conversations with firms all needing actuaries, be they syndicates, MGAs, brokers. They need pricing actuaries, heads of capital, reserving specialists... Plus, the larger players looking at restructures are asking us to find group roles, such as CRO, Chief Actuary, and some CFOs. The actuarial skill set really does now reach all levels of the board. In 2022, several senior actuaries took the CEO role, with more to come in 2023, so watch this space. And this is where the Bolton Associates Network comes into play. We can build your actuarial function and also draw on our established network to find those actuaries who have skills not only with numbers, but with leadership, people and specific insurance knowledge. 2023 has many exciting events for Bolton Associates coming up, keeping the market linked up, engaged and hopefully having a bit of fun. We're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So if you want us to find your elusive actuary, fresh new juniors or hear which firms are looking after their staff, then do get in touch. We're on Lime Street, so we're pretty easy to find, unlike that reinsurance pricing actuary you're currently struggling to hire. Let's speak soon. Get in touch at bolton-associates.co.uk. It's the sort of thing that journalists have to do or that we sort of force ourselves to do is become the sort of scorekeeper sometimes of the market. And it, obviously it does annoy people, but then I suppose yeah, that's what we've got to do. I suppose we talk about winners and losers of this one, one, probably the large traditional reinsurers did pretty well, particularly the ones that were consistent, that had their own pricing models, were comfortable with, in their own skin, in their own view of risk, had plenty of capital. And we're not worried about deploying it at these prices. You know, hadn't gotten too nervous and were confident that they could price for climate change and other things. Perhaps larger cedents, obviously, and cedents with an access to capital because who are not overly reliant on reinsurance. Obviously, they could cope with having their retention doubled. Whereas, obviously, uh, much smaller cedents with much less capital, less financial resources, less access to different alternative capital sources found it very hard. Well, they will find it very hard throughout the rest of this year. But also, as journalists, we look at 
the hubs for insurance and reinsurance around the world. And obviously we look at Bermuda. It seems that this time London's done very well. I mean, you've perhaps been the poster child for London being a place where you can get capital because you got capital. It wasn't a discount. It was clean new capital without a discount. You know, so well, there was a discount. It wasn't some heavily discounted rights issue, was it? it was, no. It was good. No. The reception we got from shareholders in November when we talked to them was one of surprise, but positive surprise and support because they could see the opportunity. So we were, we were delighted to be able to raise the capital. And I think you're right. There is an opportunity for the big wholesale hubs when things get hard again, when playbooks don't work for certain lines of business, it tends to flow out of the admitted markets and into the NS markets and into the wholesale hubs during that period of change. And as the market reorientates to think about property risk in a different way, I think that does give an opportunity for the big wholesale hubs. And London is right up there. And listening to John Neal at Lloyd's, for example, he thinks there's a big opportunity for Lloyd's in the London market to recapture some of its lost market share on, on the reinsurance side. And I hope he's right. But you certainly feel that you've got an environment where you can do that. You don't have to jump through too many hoops or jump over too many hurdles to do that. You feel that you've got an environment where this is all possible and there's not too many barriers in your way to make it happen. No, I think we have to demonstrate to ourselves and to our external stakeholders that we're doing it in a prudent, sensible way. But I think we can. And yes, I think you're right. We should be able to capitalise on the current marketplace. And I think these conditions will persist for a little while. Obviously, not just about property, all sorts of things have been happening for the Ukraine war and the impact of that on these treaty renewals as well. A big unbundling of a lot of covers, perhaps political violence and war covers that were bundled into composite treaties and in all sorts of facilities and other things that now seem to have been certainly unbundled. Obviously, you, you're a big player in all that market as well. I mean, you know, you're a very diversified player. Where's the opportunity there? And again, that's totally reset. What are the consequences of that going to be? And how are you going to capitalise on those? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the other major reset at 1-1 was in that specialty first party market. We had expected that to adjust and, you know, we'd expected prices to increase. We'd expected pressure on retentions and attachment points and so on and so forth, all of which happened and was anticipated. What did happen late was the unavailability of war reinsurance in and around Russia and Ukraine. And so we had to adjust for that fairly late in December and that hadn't been flagged. That was a surprise for us. I think that unavailability of reinsurance capital has meant that we've had to rethink what our net line strategy is for marine and aviation war in and around Russia and Ukraine. And we and the rest of the market are doing that, yes. I suppose in these sorts of circumstances, things are forced to stand alone. They have to stand on their own. And I suppose the ultimate standalone in reinsurance is, of course, FAC. Seems to have been an anecdotal of having my done my rounds of the renewals, that FAC is very much back, certainly on the property side, but probably everywhere else. Is that something that you're gearing up for to say, put some more capital behind your FAC team? We've always written a reasonable amount of DNF business and bought some FAC in the past. And if attachment points have gone up dramatically on first party business, it's not surprising that demand for FAC RI is going to go up. Absolutely. So you'd back that and say that that's happening. We can't have a podcast now without talking about your cyber business and your cyber cat bond, which is another great pioneering thing. So first of all, congratulations on getting that away. Can you just start off by running us through it? Because we've never had a cyber cat bond before. So I saw a press release, but I didn't get all the details. So I'd love to pick your brains about how it works. Yeah. So it's a, it's not a very big bond. It's only $45 million, but it's something we're, we're looking to scale. It's an indemnity structure and it attaches when we have losses of more than $300 million. So whilst it's not a big transaction in and of itself, 
it was a strategically important one for us. As we think about our cyber business and how scalable that is over the next five to 10 years and what that means for the cyber market more broadly, if it is going to achieve its potential of being a 30 to $50 billion market, it needs access to a lot more capital than it currently has. And if you compare it to property, for example, in order for property insurers to be able to successfully hedge their natural catastrophe exposures, they need access to the entire reinsurance market, plus a bunch of alternative capital as well. So we had, for the last three years, I'd been talking to various markets and ILS providers and so on and so forth to see how we could start to tap into that market. And we managed to do that in January this year. And our hope is that that's such a big marketplace, there's such a lot of capital there, you know, that bond is scalable. And that alongside our reinsurance partners should allow us to continue to grow our cyber business and be able to hedge it appropriately. So whilst not big, it was quite significant for us. Yeah. It's a fantastic diversifying pillar for them. You know, they can put that capital to more efficient use if they can cover more than one or two barrels. So what changed? I suppose the story up till now was that those capital market investors, and I suppose the story for them has been modelling in the mid-90s, you had suddenly RMS appeared and you could get comfortable with that risk. Someone who's a non-expert could rely on someone like RMS to, to say, look, we've got a handle on cat risk now and we can model it to a certain degree of accuracy. Is it modelling that they weren't comfortable before and now they've been able to get comfortable because obviously a huge amount of investment has gone into the modelling or is it they've just got more comfortable with you? Obviously, cyber underlying, of course, has reset itself as well. So more comfortable on many fronts. I think you summarised that quite well. So we spent quite a lot of time with the capital providers for, for the bond, taking them through how the cover works, how, how the insurance policy works, how we think about risk, how we think about systemic risk, the sort of scenarios that we have and, and how they work and the intricacies un underneath them. Alongside that, we used third-party modelling as well. So we had a side-by-side -side comparison of how a third party thinks about cyber risk on our portfolio as well as ours, and they got comfortable. But it was a combination of getting comfortable with us and what we're doing and, and how we underwrite it, along with some third-party independent view of systemic risk on our book. So it's a good validation of, of you, isn't it? It's, it's almost like you've been vetted. It did feel like that, yes. <laughs> well, that's good. So it does bode well for the market as a whole. I though. think so. We weren't going to hit the buffers. Obviously, probably the last time we spoke, we spoke of that potential for the growth to stall in cyber because we hadn't got the capital comfortable enough to give the limits that the clients are going to need. And it's a combination of two things that the cyber market needs, I think. First is access to more capital. But the second is access to more reinsurance product. And fundamentally, what that means is we need to build a cyber cap market, just like we have a NAT cap market. And this could be part of that. And that, that's quite exciting. And on the underlying cybers continue to grow, you're still getting rate movement. And obviously, the industry's got more of a handle on the ransomware epidemic that we had. Yep. Yep, uh, and so everything's set a bit more fair there, and obviously pricing is totally reset. Yeah, so pricing's reset. The rate changes that we're getting on the portfolio were tapering off during the year, so they're still positive, but they're not the sort of dramatic numbers that we were posting at the beginning of the year, which is sort of in line with with what we're expecting. You can definitely see improved risk management generally across the corporate world. So companies are getting safer. I think us and others have been getting better at thinking about what new threats there are and, and how to tackle them. So I think the underwriting and, and our knowledge and awareness of, of risk has, has improved. And the combination of those two things has helped to bring down the frequency of ransomware. And, and we've seen that, and I think others have as well. And that's a, that's a good thing. So I think the cyber insurance industry has got some of its confidence back in the second half of last year. I think we'll start to see more capital flood in. And that's a good thing, because the biggest, I think, for the cyber market still is the strong growth in demand for it.
the last time we spoke, inflation was within central bank targets, or probably just exceeding them. Which is crazy <laughs> to think it wasn't that long right. ago. It wasn't That's that long right. ago. Yes. So it is a relatively new phenomenon for anyone under the age of 30 who doesn't really know what it was like. I grew up in the 70s, so I do remember what it was like. Um, Me too. How's the view on inflation now? We've had this inflation shock. How are you dealing with it? Is it still shocking? Or is it just embedding itself into everything you're doing? You're building it into all your pricing, and you're getting the pricing away, so you're happy. Or is it still a big worry? Is it still giving you any potential nightmares, obviously, on longer-tail business and reserves that are already in there, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think we've provision for it fully in, in how we operate as a business. So we've got the, the feedback loops between underwriting, reserving, capital, and so on and so forth. And so we very overtly contemplate it as we think how much capital we need, as we do our pricing, as we set our reserves. And we've been doing that for a while now, and that is working. And as long as inflation persists, we will continue to do that. I think when we last talked, I said a level of inflation is actually quite good for business. You know, you, you tend to get a better yield on your assets. Values are going up. There's more premium flowing through the system, provided you can provision for it okay. It's actually quite healthy. That level of inflation is probably three to four, not eight to ten. And so I think we would certainly prefer it if inflation started to come down, but we haven't assumed that at all in our thinking yet. And that good side of inflation, it does make people conscious of values, whereas if you have benign inflation, it's still one or two percent. If you leave something people are less conscious of having to revalue their property exposures if it's only inflating at 1% or 2%. But of course, that compounds to 10 or 15 over a few years. Um, but now everyone's absolutely conscious of their values because you've got 10% inflation. And that's been one of the big stories in property, isn't it, the last, the last couple of years is um, insured values. Absolutely. This is a good market for underwriters and obviously for well-capitalised underwriters. And obviously, the market's been on a big expense ratio reduction during a more difficult market. Presumably, this is going to be really good news now that you're going to be able to get so much more production out of your underwriters per head, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Presumably expense ratios are going to be absolutely falling. I mean, we have an ambition to continue to reduce our expense ratios. Because you hope that you can carry on growing without having to double, you can double premium without doubling headcount, presumably. Yes, definitely. But also, I think technology is finally catching up with insurance in a meaningful way. And I think there is the opportunity over the next few years to be able to digitise and automate properly and actually be able to do the job of underwriting and administering insurance more efficiently than we had done in the past. And so we're investing a reasonable amount in that process. So I'm hopeful that there are two drivers of reducing expense ratios. First, the effect you mentioned with more rate means we can have more income per head, but also that we should be able to get better at what we do and actually do the whole administration job more effectively. So presumably you're looking forward to some of the London market reforms particularly? Definitely. Um, embracing those? Definitely. It was interesting. As we've been gearing up for this process, we've been recruiting some people to join us to, to help. There are lots of people across the insurance market that are doing exactly the same thing that we're doing. I think the market more generally is gearing up really to digitise in a wholesale way, which is quite exciting. That's really, really good. We're sitting in the City of London. We had a nine o'clock meeting. I came in and I reminded myself that I hadn't been for proper traditional London rush hour. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten. I need, yeah, I, today I need, was the day. I was five it? minutes late. I arrived five minutes later than I would have done otherwise because I'd forgotten that, um, that the underground goes slower during the rush hour. How's this sort of home office hybrid working working out? So I'm just going back to what we spoke of last time you were on the show. And I, th I thought now you've got much more data and we've been through this. We're in this hybrid world and then are you, you're going to see how it was stacking up. I certainly got the impression that you didn't have a top-down idea of how it should be. 
you want your company to tell you how it wants to work in the most efficient way rather than you telling it. Yes, that's very well put. And I think we're still learning. I'm very keen that we have our cake and eat it. And by that, I mean, we continue to make use of the office and the face-to-face engagement that that allows. At the same time, we've learned, haven't we, that we have many more tools at our disposal to do our work flexibly and efficiently, and we don't lose that either. So we are gradually learning how to make the best of the hybrid world, but I think we're still only really at the beginning of that process. Presumably there's no cost benefit at the moment. You still can't pencil in having a smaller office. Uh, No. So it's more like the worst of both worlds because you've got to kit out everyone's home office. You, know, you still pay them to commute every night because they come in three days a week. And then you've got to have all the space here and you've got to have boxes at Lloyd's. Well, the office here is full when there's no train strike on. <laughs> the office here is full at a reasonable amount of the time. And that's very exciting. And people are discovering, we, I think we are discovering that there remain genuine benefits in getting together face to face on a regular basis, not just to see clients and broker partners and all the rest of it, but actually as a team to engage and to learn together and so forth. But I, st- I still think we're figuring all this out and that's okay. I can do a podcast on Zoom, but it's 10 times better when I'm sitting drinking a coffee, I'm sitting opposite you and you get biscuits as well, of course. So. <laughs> you do, <laughs> you do. Having said that, doing an interview on Zoom is very easily done. It's not bad. I can probably get a sauce in your diary quicker if I do it that way. So if we wanted a quick interview about something, we could probably do it that way. So there's good to have alternatives. I was listening back to the last podcast we did. You just launched your ESG syndicate in a box at the time. And actually you were positing a theory, a very plausible theory and probably sort of a sensible theory, that good ESG players are probably better risks and probably would produce lower loss ratios than others who weren't. In fact, since then, elsewhere in the market, there have been studies that have been published that do corroborate that. Does that chime with your own experience now that you've been doing a bit more of this? It's way too early for us to be able to, because <laughs> we only launched it at the beginning of last year. So you haven't got enough data? We don't have enough data, but we remain very keen to grow the business. I think, as you say, it's a sensible assumption to make, isn't it? So it's one that we're working to try to see if we can validate. And we're spending a reasonable amount of time making sure that we're thinking about those sorts of things as we underwrite across our entire suite of business. So it's taking up quite a lot of our time and energy. And on the wider ESG question, do you think the market's going to get better at getting organised on this because obviously it seems like we're going to have to have you know, at least some standardised way of at least ingesting the data that we're going to require to measure it. I think so. There's a increasing noise from regulators that the whole ESG rating industry needs a bit more oversight, and that's probably a good thing, so we can get some consistency about how we measure ourselves. And I think we are making some progress as, as to how we can think about things like measuring the carbon intensity of our underwriting portfolios and, and the like. So I do see progress being made there. And yes, it is a good thing. Excellent. Adrian, I've run through all my questions. I've just got so many things going on. Is there anything that I've missed within the BC world? You know, you are, you are progressing on so many fronts. It's easy for someone like me to miss things or only look at the last shiny object that you put in front of us. So what else should we be talking about? Would it, something you'd like to leave us with? It is an exciting time, isn't it? But it is a time of high risk and high reward. And what we need to make sure is we, is we don't forget the high reward is because the risks are elevated. And that elevated risk environment really does persist. Whichever way you look, whether it's geopolitics, inflation, social inflation, climate change, everything is more complicated than it was a few years ago. And we were entering 2022 full of hope and vigour. And then, and then a war happened. So who knows what left field thing will come next. But I think the way you started this interview by saying this is an exciting time, it's very true. Sort of summarise Beasley's view is that 
you're not gung ho because you're aware, fully aware of those risks, but you're you're happy to stride into that arena. But as long as you know exactly what you're getting yourself into, have you properly armoured yourself up, and you have you know the right sort of weapons at your disposal as well. Uh, we- weapons? Well, let's say. I didn't want to carry on the battle did, now. Yes. As long as we could do things thoroughly and thoughtfully, yes. Adrian, thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Good luck in 2023. Thanks so much, Andy. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.